it's nice to be back again. I was a student at the Salk Institute 35 years ago. All right, good afternoon. Today I would like to talk about lethal violence in two hunter-gatherer societies that I worked in. I will start with some real-life examples that I recorded during the last 35 years, but my goal here is to do more than present anecdotes. What I'd like to do is suggest some statistical comparative patterns and then perhaps some unique patterns of violence that set humans apart from other mammals and perhaps even all other organisms on Earth. This first slide gives an example of this. Humans are the only species to signal clearly that other mem- to the other members of their own social group that they have killed an individual. They communicate this effectively to a wide audience of people who were nowhere near the killing event when it happened, and I believe that the potential for large audience effects affects human violence patterns quite considerably. Here, for example, we see the ritual jaicha scars that are put on the back of all Aceh men after they have killed another human being. In January 2012, the Washington Post announced that a Machiganga man in Peru named Chaco Flores had been killed by an uncontacted tribe of Mashkopito Indians. Chaco was shot in the chest by a bamboo-tipped arrow when he encountered the Mashkopito close to his village in the jungle. The Mashkopito are a nomadic tribe of hunter-gatherers who still use stone tools. They're one of the last uncontacted tribes in the world. And these photos were taken in 2012 by an ornithologist who spied on the Mashkopito with a huge telephoto lens from across the Madre de Dios River. What really grabbed my attention about this news story in the Washington Post is that I myself had tracked the Mashkopito between 1983 and 1986 with grant money from the LSB Leakey Foundation. Chaco, whose real name is Shamoklo, was my guide at that time, and he and I had approached to within 40 meters of a Mashkopito camp in 1986 and lay there in the underbrush, listening to women talking and children playing, before we decided to withdraw because it was uncertain if an attempted contact would be peaceful. There's also another uncontacted group of people, another tribe in the same region around the border of Peru and Brazil. These people call themselves Nawa, and they have been photographed recently several times out of the window of low-flying aircraft. You can see from these pictures here that they generally fire arrows at the monster buzzing bee as it passes overhead. The most recent pictures, which were just posted on the internet a couple weeks ago, were taken in March of this year, only two months ago, in an overflight that was contracted by a neighboring indigenous tribe that was concerned about lethal raids by the Nawa on their village. Ironically, I also worked with these newly contacted Yorta Nawa in 1986. And what was particularly strange was that Chaco was my guide at that time too, and he had told me matter-of-factly how the Yorta had attacked his own village when he was a boy and slaughtered every man, woman, and child. Chaco was the only survivor of that attack. His sister was left with a stake through the center of her body in the middle of the village, and Chaco had escaped by jumping into the Manu River, drifting underwater downstream as the Yorta shot arrows at him from the banks around. 
Well, the story of Charco Flores and the uncontracted Mascopito illustrate a grim fact of small-scale tribal society. Men from different tribes often kill each other on sight and conduct wars of extermination. In order to study the adaptive significance of human lethal violence, however, we systematically collect detailed information about the lives of individuals, and I did this for two hunter-gatherer tribes in South America throughout the 1980s, first the Ache of Paraguay and second the Hiwi of Venezuela. Both of these two groups made first peaceful outside contact in the 1970s, but the Hiwi continued to raid each other and outsiders up through the middle of the 1990s. From 1980 to 1996, my colleagues and I collected hundreds of interviews with all living men and women in three Ache and two Hiwi communities. We asked people to recount all the births and deaths of close relatives one by one, starting with their grandparents and then moving to nieces, nephews, children, grandchildren, and so on. From these interviews, we collected details on 317 intentionally caused violent deaths and 68 other individuals who were captured in warfare and never seen again. At the end of my talk, I'm going to present some comparative statistical measures, but first I'd like to just do a survey of the types of killing that were reported to us. Photos in these PowerPoint slides that I'm about to show are of the actual killers or the individual who narrated the event to us. The victim photos, however, are people who are described as the same age and sex as the real victim. Names of currently living individuals have been deleted to protect identities, but the real names are given for deceased individuals. So the first category that we recorded were infanticides, children between zero and one years old, and this accounted for 93 of the deaths in our sample. For example, and I'm just going to go through one example of each type here. We don't have time to look at everything. In 1984, uh, Kay gave birth to a small baby girl in the forest, and then later, um, approximately three or four days later, she smothered that baby to death. She told us that she was concerned that the baby's head was perhaps not correctly formed, and in any case, her husband was angry at her because he claimed she had had sex with other men around the time of the baby's conception. Second category of killing is child homicide. Children 2 to 14 years old totaled 45 deaths in our sample. D, for example, here, told us how he and his friend A had killed the girl Kanjegi, a 12-year-old girl in 1962 because her father, Bechepegi, had been slain in a club fight, the same kind we just heard Patricia talk about. Kanjegi had tried to run, but the older men easily caught her. They held her down, stepped on her chest until she lost consciousness, and then buried her alive with her father, Bechepegi. The next category is geronticide and euthanasia, accounting for about 10 of the deaths in our sample. For example, my friend Kwaregi here told me tearfully how he had buried his mother, Pudombutugi, alive in 1972 when she was too sick to walk. She had been left behind when the band moved to a new campsite, and Kwaregi returned to look for her. He found her too weak to stand and decided to bury her alive so that vultures would not peck out her eyes while she was still alive. Piragi, on the other hand, was quite joyful as he told me how he got his nickname Brupiaregi, which means the killer. 
He mentioned that he had killed several old women in his group when they were too old to keep up with the band. He always waited until they were sitting, facing away from him, and then snuck up behind them, hit them with the blunt side of an axe on the back of the head or the neck. They all died instantly. Next category in our sample of intentional killing is suicide. Interestingly, we had eight cases of suicides. Nuzia, for example, here, told me how her father, Morete, had killed himself in 1941 by drinking poison water that had been left standing in a palo aceite tree when it was cut down for a new canoe. All of the Hiwi know that such water is poisonous, but Morete did not want to live any longer because his wife had recently left him. Among the Ache here, an old man, Kuruwachugi, who was around 70 years old, became weak and sick with diarrhea. As the band was moving through the forest and found tracks of a nearby enemy camp, Kuruwachugi simply walked intentionally into the enemy camp and was never seen again. Next category of deaths in our sample is spousal homicide, which accounted for five cases. Uh, this Hiwi man right here, Wahaito, described to me how he had shot Pelchemu, his 17-year-old second wife, to death with an arrow because his first wife, R, did not want him to take a co-wife. Among the Ache, on the other hand, Kanje Puchogi here had speared his wife with an unstrung bow in 1947. After her death, he lived as a bachelor for the rest of his life and was never able to find another woman that was willing to marry him. <laughs> The next category in our sample is homicide. We had 11 deaths from this. For example, C here told me how his uncle Garagi had been shot by a man named Tonangi while Garagi was fishing. Tonangi had snuck up behind Garagi and shot him in the back with an arrow. Garagi then fell into the lagoon and drowned. Unfortunately, Garagi had no male kin to avenge his death. On the other hand, D here, who was one of my best informants among the modern Hiwi, told me how he and a few of his friends had encountered a man named Jay on a trail near the Apure River in 1981 and stabbed the man to death. Jay was then cut up into little pieces, thrown into the river full of piranhas and alligators, which quickly devoured all evidence of the killing. They hoped that this would go undiscovered, but it was not. Jay had been attempting to elicit surreptitious copulation with Dee's wife against her will, and she had informed her husband of the fact. The killing was, in fact, eventually discovered, and this led to three or four years of intervillage raiding before they finally made a peace. The next category, which follows almost directly from Patricia's talk, is what I call ritual deaths or ritual duels. This accounted for nine deaths in our sample. The Ache men often invited other bands for ritual club fight battles during the entire pre-contact period. This happened about once a year um, in Ache society. Several Ache men were witnesses, for example, in 1969 when a young man, Betapagi, who was only 19 years old, was clubbed to death by Bejarogi Achipurangi Nambugi. Although the fight had started as a two-man duel, with hardwood clubs, it quickly escalated into a contest of one against three as others joined into the fray. The next category of deaths is 
intra-tribal warfare or within group warfare. Uh, sometimes we might call this feuding as well, as Chris Bohm mentioned. In this case, I had four deaths among the Hiwi. In 1986, Mehure here, who was 31 years old, was killed by a coalition of men who had fought against and killed his father some 30 years earlier. While Mahorde was visiting a neighboring band and taking hallucinogenic drugs, Cayetano, a really old guy here who had been involved in the killing of Mahorde's father, approached Mahorde and hit him on the head with an axe. Then, as Mahorde sat dizzy and vomiting, several other men shot him full of arrows to finish him off, the famous pincushion that we heard about earlier. Mehorde's body was dragged into the savanna and mutilated. Several days later, when men from his village discovered the body, they conducted a raid on the offending village. This led to raids and counter-raids that took place over a period of four or five years while we were in the field. One raid took place when my colleague, Dr. Magdalena Hurtado, was in the Mahenemutu camp, and I was out hunting with my focal man in March of 1988. Magdalena managed to frighten off the raiders in that case by activating the loud alarm system on our field vehicle. During this period of intervillage raiding from 1986 to 1990, Hiwi men frequently practiced shooting at mock enemy targets, and all intervillage visiting ceased. At the same time, there were daily dances that took place with all men in the band holding each other by the arm, forming a single line, and singing songs of solidarity. The final category of killing that we recorded in our sample was what we would call intertribal warfare, killing against people who spoke a different language. We had 133 deaths and 68 individuals captured and presumed dead because they were never seen again. For example, Kanjegi here told me how he and his brother uh, Chachugi had raided a Paraguayan woodcutter's camp in 1969. They shot one logger with an arrow, pinning his two legs together. Then when he couldn't watch, they, they couldn't walk, he approached them, screaming for help, and they cut off his head with an axe to revenge the prior killing of their sister's father-in-law. They then took the axe with them and left. Among the Hiwi, Barda here accounted, told us how her mother Tsibeya had been killed in 1959 with some 30 or more other people in her band that was completely exterminated when surprised by a group of Criollos on the Hikutimene River. I believe that each one of these categories of killing described implies slightly different evolutionary costs and benefits. In other words, I don't think that lethal violence is a single category of behavior. Stories and anecdotes can give important insights into lethal violence, but statistical analysis is required for a systematic comparison. Our demographic data, for example, show that 55% of all pre-contact Aceh deaths and 31% of all Hiwi deaths were due to human violence. Interestingly, while only 54% of the victims were male, 96% of the perpetrators were male. Within banned killings classified as infanticide, child homicide, gerontocide, euthanasia, and suicide accounted for more than 40% of this total. I'm going to talk about this again in a second. And intertribal warfare accounted for about 50%. 
The per capita death rates can be easily calculated by dividing the number of deaths by the population size and the number of years monitored. The pre-contact crude death rate for both the Aceh and the Hiwi is right around 600 deaths per 100,000 person years. This is about 100 times higher than the crude death rate in the United States during the 20th century, and at least six times higher than the death rate during the four years of World War II in the United States, counting all homicide and all warfare deaths that took place to U.S. citizens. Notice also the huge drop in violence when both of these two hunter-gatherer groups first encountered a nation-state and were pacified. As evolutionary biologists, we recognize that killing is not uncommon in other species, but I believe there are some unique patterns in human killing. Here today, I'm just going to mention two of these. First, about 40% of all the deaths we recorded were due to infanticide, child homicide, gerontocide, euthanasia, and suicide. Economic studies in hunter-gatherer societies have shown that it does indeed take a village to raise a child. This is what biologists call cooperative breeding. Various kin and non-kin have a vested interest in raising juveniles and also in feeding and caring for each other. Because many individuals help share the costs of raising kids, they may also violently terminate that investment when children are orphaned, defective, or otherwise not likely to be useful. Likewise, individuals who are too old, sick, or injured may not elicit further cooperative provision and care to keep them alive. And finally, probably most shockingly, some individuals choose to terminate their own lives when help they receive from others could better be expended on something else. Most of these types of killings that we're describing here have never been described for any other species of mammals or even vertebrates and are mainly only described among the social insects. The last thing I want to talk about is intertribal warfare. It's a big theme in studying violence in humans because intertribal warfare, first of all, killed 50% of the victims in our database, but most importantly, coalitionary violence is of special interest to evolutionary biologists because all group members sometimes share the benefits of winning a battle, but multiple group members must cooperate at high risk to win. This means there's always a temptation to free ride, in other words, to hang back and let others die for whatever the group beneficial cause is. The cooperative mechanisms that have developed to solve this free rider problem may also apply to other facets of human life as well, possibly explaining why humans are an exceptionally cooperative species with non-kin. So human lethal violence appears to represent a fascinating evolutionary irony. The cruelest human behaviors may turn out to be causally related to some of the most cooperative tendencies of our species. Thank you.